Open your Bibles, we're just having fun here, to Matthew chapter 5. We're walking through the Beatitudes in a series that we're called Flourishing. Once again, we, we've made a booklets available. You can grab one of these on the way out if you haven't already. Use them for your, your devotional times in your community groups or actually to take notes during the sermon. Now, it's that time of the year, is it not, where your mailbox and my mailbox start filling up with graduation announcements and wedding invitations and save the dates. And of course, the Gilberts, we're, sh- we're sending out our share of those as well with a graduate in our household. Now, the cynical might call all of these announcements sort of passive-aggressive requests for money. That's, the, that's what the cynical would say, right? But we know what they really are. They're pronouncements. They are congratulations. They are good tidings. And in a lot of ways, that's exactly what the Beatitudes are. These are not if-then clauses. If you do this, then God will do this. No, no, no. This is Jesus, the Holy Spirit, looking out and saying, I have a pronouncement to make. If you want to know who's really living the good life, who's really flourishing, let me tell you who those people are. Let me tell you what they are doing. They are the most, in fact, to be envied. And so blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. They are the ones who are truly flourishing. Now, context here in Matthew chapter 4, the multitudes are running after Jesus. And it tells us that Jesus's fame has spread far and wide. As far as other countries, they're, they're traveling from all over um, the ancient Middle East to, to be healed and to see this man do amazing miracles. And remember, this is an oppressed people. This is a people who are searching. This is a people who, from their perspective, are not living the good life. They are oppressed by the Romans. They are looking for a political savior, someone to ride in and save the day. And Jesus is gathering all these people up. They seek that this man can say something to them that will, that will help them understand their lives a little bit better. And I want you to listen for a second as to how Matthew frames this, these pronouncements that Jesus makes. And we looked a little bit at this last week, but let me read these first two verses in chapter 5 again. It says, Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Now, if you're uh, familiar at all with the Bible, you know that mountains are highly symbolic in Scripture. Um, Oftentimes when God meets with his people, when he meets with his servants, where does he meet? On a mountain, and to Burke Newborn chagrin, not in North Carolina, right? Okay, this is this is this is in the although that's close to God's country, no, no doubt, no doubt. But think about Moses meeting God where? On a mountain. Israel receiving God's law where? On a mountain. Abraham sacrificing Isaac where? On a mountain. The temple of God built in that very spot on the Mount of Jerusalem, Mount Zion. This, is, this signifies that God has something important to say. This dignifies, signifies authority. This is where God delivers a word. And it's interesting that Matthew says 
he opened his mouth. Now, why in the world would Matthew say that? Like, is, is, this, is Jesus normally the ventriloquist here? What, what, I mean, this is painfully obvious, right? Nowhere else does Matthew say this sort of thing. He opened his mouth. Well, why does he mention that? It's obviously a point of emphatic emphasis. It's Matthew's way of saying, this is no ordinary man, like giving his take on life. This, in fact, is King Jesus. He is sitting down, which was always a sign of authority in in Jewish circles. He is making pronouncements. He is speaking truth. Spurgeon notes that Jesus lifted up his voice like a trumpet. It's almost as if Matthew is saying, listen, listen, pay attention. Jesus is saying, all you who want to flourish... All you want, all of you who want to know what the good life is, your king speaks. Listen to him. He, he loves you. He wants what's best for you. He is going to tell you, regardless of what the world might say or other people might say, or what you might tell yourself, he's going to tell us who it is that's truly flourishing. And so that's where we are this morning. We're going to read all seven Beatitudes, but we're going to look at the second set of three. So I'm going to invite you to stand this morning and imagine yourself. This is what you would have been doing when Jesus was teaching. Maybe you would have been standing, listening as he was seated. And here's what Jesus says. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This ends the reading of God's holy, inspired word. May he write its truth upon our hearts this morning. You may be seated. Last week, we looked at the first of these three pronouncements. And, and if you weren't here, I encourage you to go back and, and listen or watch that because we talked about how these first three Beatitudes are really foundational to the rest of the sermon. They are Jesus' invitation to us to take a spiritual audit of our lives. And we, we see that there's kind of a natural progression here. As you come to know that you are poor in spirit, you have nothing to offer God, you in turn are exposed, your sin is laid out there, and you mourn it, you confess it, and it says that God comforts us. And then, of course, as God comforts us, he creates in us this new spirit where We no longer feel like we have to assert our rights in any and every situation. That's why he says, blessed are the the meek. And so this is kind of an inward spiritual inventory, but these next three are ones that 
kind of building upon that, take us into the depths of what it is to know God. And in the same way, they all build upon each other. They're all linked inseparably together. If you've got one of those little post-it note calendars that has a beatitude for every day, blah, no, 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 don't, it's okay. You keep it there, okay? But these are meant to be taken together. They're woven together. And as we're, as we're diving into this, let me just recommend one resource for you. Um, this is by Brother Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's now with the Lord. This is called Studies in the Sermon on the Mount. Martin Lloyd-Jones is probably the greatest preacher of the 20th century. If Charles Spurgeon was the greatest preacher of the 19th century, Martin Lloyd-Jones was Welsh. He preached at Westminster Chapel. Um, an amazing, amazing expositor. You can still go online and listen um, to some of his, of his sermons that were recorded 50, 60, even 70 years ago. And let me just say, we're going to have several quotes by Lloyd-Jones. I can't take the time to every time I have a reference to something he says, because my whole study Bible commentary was underlined, okay? So if you're, if you're reading Lloyd-Jones and you're saying, well, Pastor Paul said that and tried to take credit for it. I didn't try to take credit for it. But creativity is knowing who to steal stuff from, okay? And let me just say, this, this is gold. This is gold. This is so rich. The next three, blessed, the first of all, let's look at this one. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Again, what is Jesus saying here? He's looking out over this room this morning, and he's saying, let me tell you who it is that's really flourishing in here. It's those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Now, what does that that mean? Here's what Lloyd-Jones says. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Now, listen, this is a negative and a positive. First, it means ultimately the desire to be free from sin in all its forms and its every manifestation. Think about that. Don't, don't some days you wake up and you're like, man, I just, I want to be free from sin. I hate this sin. I hate my struggle in this sin. That's the Holy Spirit. So negatively, it means the desire to be free from sin. But because sin separates us from God... It means a desire to be right with him. You are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, and I am, when our bottom line, fundamental disposition, our supreme goal is that, God, I want to please you. God, I want to be holy. I want to be set apart for you. And you see, even when you're sinning, and even when you really don't want to be righteous, when there's something in you that's still praying, God, I don't want to be righteous right now, but I want to want to be righteous. Does that make sense? That's hungering and thirsting. That's recognizing I'm not where I want to be. I'm not... I'm not satisfied. I'm not content with the state of my own sanctification. I want to grow in communion. I want to grow into holiness. I want to want to be righteous. And interestingly, here we have a promise attached to this pronouncement, to this beatitude. Jesus says, look back down, 
At verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be what? Satisfied. Now the word there means literally full to the brim. It's actually a culinary word. It could mean to gorge yourself to the point of being overflowing. Do you know what I mean? Like when you do that buffet thing, and you know you shouldn't do that buffet thing, but you do the buffet thing anyway. And we all do it. And at the end of the meal, what do we all invariably say? We all say the same thing. What is that? I'm stuffed and I could never what? Eat again, right? You lie. You lie, right? Of course we're going to eat again. Sometimes the same day, okay? Just as much food. See, that's the nature of thirst and hunger. They are not passive desires, They are desires that compel themselves upon us no matter what we do. And Jesus is making a point of comparison here. Do you know that your soul is just like that? Your soul and my soul are wired to look for satisfaction. Your soul and my soul are wired to look for fulfillment. And when our souls don't get what they crave, they will get super duper creative about what they'll try to fit in that spot. And, and it's so, so easy to do in such an affluent culture. See, we, we, we look to hobbies or travel or sex or money or status or we sanitize it and focus it all on our children or grandchildren. But here's the problem, okay? Understand something. This is not a diatribe against the gifts of God. All of those things are the gifts of God. They are to be celebrated and embraced. That's not the problem. The problem is not with the gifts. The problem is with you and me. Because we look to those gifts to do something for us that they were never designed to do. We're looking for them to fill us, to quench that hunger, to quench that thirst. Lloyd-Jones makes this point. You know, unhappiness is like the great dreaded disease of our culture, isn't it? We would rather be anything than unhappy. But you know that unhappiness is not the problem? Unhappiness is just a symptom. See, happiness and unhappiness are byproducts spiritually of this beatitude, of hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Lloyd-Jones says that if you, if you make being happy your ultimate goal and you, and you do everything you can to be happy, you will get neither righteousness nor happiness. But if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, then the overflow of joy into your heart is the necessary, in fact, is the, is the joyful byproduct of seeking after first the kingdom of God. How in the world could the Apostle Paul, through everything, beatings, whippings, imprisonments, stoning, still say rejoice in the Lord always because he was hungering and thirsting for righteousness. 
See, this pronouncement reminds us that happiness flourishing is only truly found in communion and relationship with God. But when we treat happiness or unhappiness as the main problem, guys, you know, we will make catastrophic spiritual errors in our life. I don't know if you saw the, the, the news, and there's stories like this all the time, but this mom was having some, some benign symptoms related to her digestive system, went in and got checked, and they assured her it was nothing serious, and, but these conditions persisted. And in the middle of all this, she was having a series of children, and so her body seemed to be functioning. It was normal. It was fine, but she had these persistent digestive problems, and they were, they were kind of beating back the symptoms with whatever treatment she was receiving until she found out one day, oh, no, 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 what you really have is colon cancer. And our desire to beat back the symptoms is, in fact, what's leading to your very death. Now, by God's grace, she and this particular person, um, they caught it in time, and, and she's on the road to recovery. But, but do, you see the, do you see the point here? When we try to train all of our energy on filling that hole, instead of looking at what's underneath that and what, the, what that hunger and desire is pointing to, we will do great destruction to our lives spiritually. This is why men leave their families. This is why people walk away from the faith. G.K. Chesterton said, and you've heard it said here before, that when a man goes to a brothel, he's not looking for sex. What's he looking for? Jesus. He just doesn't know it. He feels the symptom acutely, but he's trying to, to window dress it with all the wrong solutions, and it's killing him. Guys, there, there, there's, a, there's an amazing pronouncement that Jesus makes in this beatitude, that there is a deep, deep fulfillment, is there not? When you know you are right in the middle of the will of God. There, there's a peace, just like we sang this morning, it is well with my soul. See, there, there's an amazing peace that whatever else is going in our, on in our life, when we know that we are following God, when we are aligned with him, when we are doing his will, there is a peace of soul. There is a peace of conscience. There is a, there is a spiritual rest that cannot be had anywhere else. If you find yourself frustrated today at life, frustrated at your marriage, frustrated at your children, frustrated at your relationships, frustrated at your job, frustrated at your, your finances, that's a gift that's a gift of God's grace. Because if you were truly satisfied, you wouldn't turn to Jesus. You wouldn't turn to him to be filled. Jesus says, turn to me, come to me. I'm not going to take away all those problems. But I'm going to give you a joy, a satisfaction in the depths of your heart that is impossible outside of my supernatural work. So Jesus says first this morning, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Secondly, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, as part of my 
background in counseling, I've heard it said, and you've probably heard it said too, that hurt people, people who are hurt, hurt people. So in other words, people who wound and hurt others relationally oftentimes, almost invariably, are those who have been wounded, who have been hurt themselves, and they are sort of acting out of their experience. They're acting out of their, their nature, their background. Hurt people hurt people. Well, this is an amazing pronouncement because Jesus completely flips that upside down. And, and here's what Jesus says. He says, forgiven people forgive people. Forgiven people forgive people. Now understand, this can be a, sometimes to us, a scary pronouncement because it seems to be sort of the if-then statement. If, if I'm merciful to my children, then God will be merciful to me. If I'm not merciful, God like, God like banishes me to his displeasure or something like that. That's, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. What he, remember, these are pronouncements. The, 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 these are a statement of who it is that's really flourishing. What he's saying is that people who have been shown mercy, people who have really known grace, people who have truly known the depths of what they've been forgiven from, the people who have experienced and received forgiveness from God, those are the people who extend mercy and grace to others. It's just part of their nature. It's who they are. You, you, you heard it this, this morning in the redemption video testimony from Jan Hamilton. I'm struggling with a root of bitterness. But God just kept persisting and working and moving by his grace Because forgiven people forgive people. Here's what Lloyd-Jones says. And this this is so good. If I know that I am a debtor to mercy alone, if I know that I am a Christian solely because of the free grace of God, there should be no pride left in me. There should be nothing vindictive. There should be no insisting upon my rights. Rather, as I look out upon others, if there is anything in them that is unworthy or that is a manifestation of sin, I should have this great sorrow for them in my heart. See, here's here's a distinction between mercy, what Jesus is talking about here, and then simply grace. When, when, When you show grace to someone you overlook their wrong. You, you decide not to retaliate. You let bygones be bygones. You don't pursue vindictiveness. That's grace. But mercy is grace in action. Mercy is what we are compelled towards by our demonstration or, or, or affection of grace for people. Let me give you an example. So parents, if you haven't been introduced to the Dreaded Science Project, oh, 
may, may, may the fleas of a thousand camels infest the armpits of those people who assign these things. Science projects. And, and you know what happens, right? You see this coming. Your child drops the ball. They have forgotten, quote unquote, about their science project, um, which is due probably like in three hours. It's due tomorrow. Oh my gosh, mom and dad, you got to go to Target. You got to do this. You got to do that. Now, now, there's a place for grace there, right? Your child apologizes. You forgive them. You, you, you decide not to hold that against them. You don't punish them. You might co- even commiserate with them, right? Like commiserate around the fact that science projects should be banned forever, okay? From all sorts of school projects. I'm, I'm semi-kidding. And then you send them to school anyway. Now, what's going to happen to them if you send them to school with no science project? You might have been gracious to them, but what are they really in need of when they head to school that morning? They need mercy, right? They need mercy. See, mercy is staying up to 2 a.m., helping them make these paper mache English castle things. And and by staying up to 2 a.m., helping them, what I mean is you do it for them. Right, parents? Everybody understand this? See, when Jesus was walking down the road and saw the Good Samaritan, it wasn't, when he was telling the parable, it wasn't simply grace that compelled them. He felt grace toward them, but it was mercy, right? See, mercy is what compels us to action. Mercy is not passive. Mercy is proactive. And and you better believe, mercy is costly. Let me ask you something. Are you someone who's holding a grudge or has a root of bitterness this morning that you can't let things go? That you're just sort of in a continuous, tumultuous state of low-grade anger or frustration? You don't need me, you don't need Jesus to tell you you're not flourishing, are you? That stuff will just eat you up. It will seep into all of your relationships, your marriage, your parenting, your co-workers, your roommates, your boyfriend, your girlfriend. Maybe you need to be reminded again as I do this morning, blessed are the merciful. Because we've been shown mercy. You see, it... Every time you're, 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 you're frustrated or you're compelled to think the very worst about someone or what they've done, just remember that you are a broken person too. I am a broken person too. Maybe, maybe, and I don't know where your heart is, maybe you've never experienced the mercy of God. Maybe you've been in church your whole life or in small group and can say the creeds and have been to Sunday school and done the felt boards and just the, the whole kit and caboodle, but you just, your, your insides are just always churning. There's always anger. There's always something directed at someone. Remember, forgiven people forgive people. Which, which, which me, this is not an if-then clause because, you know what? For this to happen, there has to be a heart change. Okay, this is something that you cannot simply conjure up on your own. 
And, and make no mistake, there is a category here for the fact that forgiveness is both a decision and it's a process. We understand that. You can, you can make a decision to release, to relinquish, to walk away. It doesn't mean that all the, the, the angry feelings dissipate immediately. Sometimes that takes time. Oftentimes it does. But there is a promise here. Because when you are merciful, you better believe the reason you're merciful, the reason that compulsion, that desire is even in you is because God has shown you mercy. I want you to notice the progression here as we, as we tackle this last beatitude. There, there's a progression, right? There's a hunger for God. I want to please him. I'm, I draw close to him because I know that I've been shown mercy. And here we sort of get to this, this pinnacle of, of, of the Beatitudes in a lot of ways, although none of them can be separated out. They're all equally important. But this one, I think, is, pure, is, is particularly relevant for us this morning. Look at this last one, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, to understand this, you have to put your shoes in the people who were first listening to this, which was first century or New Testament Jews. You can, I don't have time to do it, but you can go back through the Old Testament and you can find that one of the prevailing themes of the whole Old Testament is that every Jew wanted to see God. That was the, the ultimate, that was the nirvana, that was, that was the holy of holies. And by see God, we don't just mean physically although certainly that, but every Jew wanted to apprehend, to know, to, be, to know that they were made fully right with God. They, they truly wanted unhindered communion. They wanted to see God for who he truly is. Talked last week about Moses. Moses was like, show me, show me the glory, Lord. But listen, King David had the same request from Psalm 24. Listen to this and listen to how closely this mirrors what Jesus is saying. It's almost as if Jesus read the Old Testament. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? Okay, Psalm 24. David asked the question, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? In other words, who can see God? Who can, who can come into relationship with him? Here's David's answer. He who has clean hands and what? A pure heart. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. This is the same thing Jesus is saying. He makes a pronouncement this morning. The pure in heart, they are flourishing. They are living the good life because they see God. Now this word pure, it means single or without folds, like a cloth without folds. It means like to have no defect. In other words, it's describing an undivided affection. It's describing a person who's consumed and concerned above all else with being right with God, of seeing him, of knowing him. Now, 
If you're playing along at home, you should see the problem even before I say it, right? Any pure hearts in here? Any takers on that one? Any takers? None of us are eager to raise our hand on that one. Because you and I both know, we, most of, we all come in here with some sort of divided allegiance or divided heart this morning that, that has all sorts of folds and defects in it that is anything but pure, that is anything but spotless. This echoes what Jeremiah says, the heart is desperately wicked, he says, in fact, who can know it? In fact, if we were to be brutally honest and we were to, to put this in the Old Testament vernacular of what the opposite of this pronouncement is, this, this is what it would say. Wretched are the impure in heart, for they will never see God. They will be forever cut off. What are we to do with this? What are we to do with this? Because I've just told you that these are pronouncements. Jesus is speaking to his disciples as if their hearts are pure. He's telling them, congratulations. You, you men are most to be blessed. What, is this, what does this mean? How do we make sense of this? If you have your Bible, flip over to Matthew 17. I think what Matthew gives us here is an, is an illustration of this principle in a story form. And you're familiar with it, maybe. It's when Jesus takes James and John and Peter up on the mountain and reveals his glory to them. Let's, let's, let's read these first four verses for a second and make a couple of comments. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain, interesting mountain, okay, by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, meaning his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish... I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now, what's going on here and what, Peter, what is Peter saying? God has taken this opportunity to display just a little bit of his glory through Jesus Christ. But it's enough for the disciples, for Peter to know, whoa, this is where the good life is. This is, this is where it is at. It is good that we are here. Let's erect a, a temple for Moses and for Jesus and for Elijah. What is he saying? Let's not go back down, Jesus. We're, we're seeing the living God face to face. Let's stay here. Let's commune. That, that, that's what Jesus is requesting. I mean, that's what Peter is requesting. That's what he's saying. And that's what we all say. Oh, God, we just want to see your face. We, we, we want to be before you. Listen to what Jesus tells Peter. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. 
Verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Now, what is all that about? When God the Father tells the disciples, listen to Jesus, what he means is that Jesus couldn't stay up on the mountain with them. Jesus had to go down from the mountain. See, before they can dwell in unhindered fellowship with the God of the universe, something had to happen. You see, if, if Jesus had not come down off the mountain, Peter, James, and John would have been absolutely obliterated. They couldn't have stood in the presence of the glory of God. Jesus says, I've got a mission I've got to take care of first. See, I have to go die on a cross. I've got to be resurrected. You see, Peter, James, and John, I've got to go so that you can be pure in heart. You're not ready to stay up here with me on the mountain yet. The other disciples aren't ready. That's why he tells them, don't tell them this. They won't understand. They won't get it. They'll want to do what you did. But, but I want you to look back and remember that I came off this mountain. I went to another hill, another mountain called Calvary. And I'm going to die and I'm going to rise. Why? To make you pure in heart. So that you can see me. So that you can dwell with me. So that you could relate to me. So that you could be in communion with me. And I just love what Jesus tells them in verse 7. So because of that, I love this. Have no fear. Have no fear. I'm doing for you what you cannot do for yourself. Folks, this is an amazing pronouncement this morning. We are not on the Mount of Transfiguration. We are after the cross. Which means that if you know Jesus Christ this morning and are trusting in him and place your faith in him with a clear conscience, I can look out over this room this morning and I can make the same pronouncement. You are blessed. You are flourishing. Why? Because you're pure in heart. Because you can see God. You see, in one way, experientially, we're all like, I can't raise my hand. I'm not pure in heart. But theologically, positionally, because of our justification, do you know you are pure in heart this morning? Do you know that you can see God? That whatever else is true about you this morning, cancer in your body, a spouse who's leaving you, financial ruin, you can say this morning, because I can see God, it is well with my soul. It doesn't mean all those things fade or they don't inflict incredible pain. No, 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 they do. They do. But Jesus is wanting us to be reminded this morning there's one thing that's even more important this morning. If you know Jesus, you are the pure in heart. You can see God. You can come to him today. Maybe you're sitting there saying, Pastor Paul, I've never thought about this. I don't know if I can see God or not. 
If that's you, just know you can't make your heart pure. Only Jesus can do that. So come to Him. Trust in Him. Have faith in Him so that you can see God too. Let's pray.